So a number of years ago, I stumbled on a very unique TV show. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to describe it just a little bit, and then I'm going to see if you can guess what TV show this is. So I was flipping, he was, I was either flipping channels or maybe Mike Chris, I have, okay, I realized something today. Every time I say the name Chris, I have to specify which Chris I'm talking about. Because there's a lot of Chris's in my life. I work for a Chris and I'm married to a Chris. So in this case, I'm talking about the married to Chris, okay? So, uh, so I, I think she might have been watching TV or we were channel surfing or something and we came across this show that mesmerized me, like I was transfixed, I was fascinated, and the premise of this show revolves around folks that have a little too much stuff built up in their homes. They have a little too much stuff built up in their homes, and so they get professionals to come in and help them clear stuff out, and there's even a kind of heartwarming angle to the show as well, where they try to address some of the underlying problems that might cause them to have all of this stuff. Can you guess what show I'm talking about? Hoarders, that's it, that was the show. There, there were epi- some circumstances in Hoarders where it's, it's almost like a horror film, where it's like you can't believe what you're looking at, but you also have this incredible sympathy for the people that are trying to overcome and improve their lives by cutting back on all of this excess, all of this stuff. When you turn on the show, you see stuff kind of like this. You see, stuff like that, I, that gives me anxiety just looking at it, you know. But at the same time, one of the interesting things about Hoarders was it wasn't just about cleaning out houses. In the episodes I remember seeing, the people that, uh, that lived in these kind of homes, they would have sessions with counselors and psychologists, and they would try to get to the root of what caused them to have this kind of behavior, because it generally stemmed from something aside from just a, a need to keep stuff or lacking cleaning skills or anything like that. There was usually something else going on beneath the surface. But whatever that thing was, it caused them to have a tremendous amount of excess a tremendous amount of too much stuff. And the more stuff there was, it would fill the houses. You can't get through your own home. It creates an oppressive environment to try to live and exist in. And it ends up creating an oppressive mental state because you feel trapped all the time inside your own home. It's, it's, it's a real thing, too. So today's message, thinking about excess and too much and clutter and just not being able to move, the title of today's message is Axe the Excess. Axe being a verb, to chop, to cut, to... uh, to pare down, to cut out the fat. We've got a number of ways of saying this. Now, my personal favorite, though, my favorite way to express this sentiment is like this. Cut it out. Okay, some of you know what I'm talking about. You remember Uncle Joey? Uncle Joey from Full House? Cut it out. I've always loved that. And when I was looking at this message for today, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. Axe the excess. Look at where there might be too much and cut it out. I love Joey. It's great. But here's the reality of what we're going to talk about today as we address this topic of excess and how it affects us. Excess clogs our spiritual bloodstream. Excess clogs our spiritual bloodstream. Now, I don't pretend to be the icon of physical fitness, okay? I am not in super perfect shape, 
but I know a thing or two about the human body because of some of the struggles that I've had with high cholesterol and some other junk like that. What I know is this. When you love Mexican food as much as I do, your blood vessels hate you. Because as you put in too much of this into your body, you have a tendency to build up cholesterol and negative things in your bloodstream, which causes your heart to work harder, which causes your blood pressure to increase, which means to do normal things, your body has to work harder to get them done. Excess in our lives does, this, does a similar thing to our spiritual health. Excess can clog our spiritual bloodstream. The more we put in, the more that we cram in, the more that we try to do this or that or own this or that or entertain this or that, the more we have to work harder to be spiritually healthy and focus on the things that God wants us to do. Now, there's an interesting concept, and I promise all this is going to tie together a little later on after we look at our story or our example this morning. It all kind of ties together in this very interesting statement. I think some of you are going through the study book right now, and so there's, there's a section that talks about this. We're going to be dealing today with a concept called self-diminishing compromises. And, and a huge theme that I want us to see today is that we must stay alert to self-diminishing compromises because they're not always as obvious as we might think. They might not always seem as severe as we might think, but every single choice is crucial. We're going to define this really quickly, and I find, find it to be most helpful to sort of define this in reverse. So when we talk about a compromise, what are we talking about with a compromise? We are talking about something where we give in. We're talking about we capitulate, or we might say forfeit our convictions even. We give in, diminishing to make smaller, to make less than it could be or what it was. And of course, self, well, that's me and you. And so when we talk about a self-diminishing compromise, we're talking about decisions that we make that forfeit our convictions and reduce us to less than we could be, especially in the area of our spiritual health and our relationship with God. These are decisions that we need to take very seriously. And the cool thing is, we have a great example today that we're going to be looking at in the scriptures of how to address a self-diminishing compromise. We're going to be going to the book of Daniel this morning, and to the very first chapter, very beginning of the book of Daniel. We're going to be dealing with the first 20 verses of the book of Daniel. This is kind of a big chunk, so what we're going to do is we're going to break this down into sections and see if we can get an idea for how, what an awesome example Daniel is to us in dealing with self-diminishing compromises. I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation today. If you've got your Bible app, you can tap on over to chapter 1 of Daniel. Follow along in your Bible, whatever you want to do. Let's get on into this right here. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. All right, quick history lesson just to give us a backdrop of where, where Daniel's coming from here. I like to put it this way. They were warned. They were warned. This is one of the most explicit prophecies you can read in the Old Testament. If you look at the book of Jeremiah, the 25th chapter, I think it's around the 
fourth, fifth to eleventh verse in there, Jeremiah, speaking for God, literally says, you guys will not turn away from your idols. There was an immense amount of idol worship happening in Israel at this time. He said, I have sent prophets. I have sent warnings. I have done all these things and you have not listened. So guess what? I'm going to send Nebuchadnezzar and he's going to take you down. Literally, in the prophecy, it says Nebuchadnezzar will come. Okay? Very specific. They knew that this was coming. And just like God said would happen, it happened. Jerusalem was besieged and Israel, the kingdom of Judah, I should say, was conquered. Was conquered. So that's the backdrop. Let's move on here to verse 3. It says, then the king, that's Nebuchadnezzar, ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring, the, bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. He wanted the best of the best. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. So if you were to stop right there, if you were to stop your Bible reading right there for the day, be like, all right, I'm going to go contemplate on what I read today, you might be thinking, that's not such a bad gig, right? It's not such a bad gig. I mean, your hometown has been besieged. It's been taken over by a foreign power. But if you're in one of these royal families and if you're an upstanding young guy, you might get to be taken into royal service. You literally get to eat from the king's kitchen, which means you're going to get the best of the best that there is. Doesn't seem like such a bad gig, does it? But where does the conflict come in? We're going to see. This is where Daniel is going to enter the story. Verse 6. Daniel... Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. I want you to see really quick right here that they were four of the young men chosen. They were not the four, men, four young men chosen. There were others. All right, we can go to the next slide. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. And Azariah was called Abednego. You might recognize those guys. Hmm? Anybody recognize them? They play a pretty big part. But Daniel, and get this, this is, the, this is the important part. Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. Now, why in the world would he do that? Why in the world would he do that? He's, he's been put into a privileged position, right? He has been taken from a conquered land, forcibly, but he's been taken from a conquered land and given the opportunity to be in the king's court, be given the best of the best, and basically have a free ride and be trained to serve in the king's court. Why would he be so determined? There's actually a little bit to unpack here. And you see, Daniel, he, like we've said, he comes from a culture of compromise. He comes from a culture that had turned its back on the ways of God and on the things that God wanted them to do. And Daniel knew that the food they were being served from the kitchens, there's a couple of things. Likely, the Babylonians ate pork, which if you know the law that was passed to the people of Israel, pork said, no, no, they were not allowed to eat pork. That was, off, that was off limits. And also, there was a very good chance that whatever meat they were eating, whatever it was, along with the wine, was very likely 
um, offered before an idol, was consecrated before a pagan idol, which to Daniel would mean to put this into his body would be to defile himself. It's actually far more serious than we would think, far more serious than we would think. However, Daniel is determined not to do that. He has his convictions. Now, here's the thing. We might look at this and, you know, think, okay, well, yay, good for Daniel. Way to go, Daniel. Stick it to him, buddy, you know. But it wasn't as simple as that. Put yourself in his shoes for a moment. Put yourself in Daniel's shoes because, honestly, he could have rationalized it. He could have. Daniel could have rationalized it. I mean, he's a, he's a captive after all. It's not like he has any choice. Besides, it seems like such a little thing. I mean, of all, the, of all the ways to sin against God, really eating the wrong thing, is that really a big deal? I mean, shouldn't he be just thankful to be able to eat, period? Or how about this one, this ultimate rationalization? Don't you think he could serve God better on a full stomach? Hmm? I had to put myself into this situation because as people, I think we do this all the time. I do this. It is so easy to rationalize our own comforts and conveniences. It is so easy to do that. And yet Daniel looked into this situation and what he saw was a self-diminishing compromise. You see, Daniel was aware of the long-term consequences of his actions. He had just come from a people that had spent years and years turning their backs to God. And Daniel was putting his foot down and saying, that stops here with me. I will not be defiled by this. Daniel was aware to the long-term consequences because let's be honest, these self-diminishing compromises, it's almost never just one. One turns into another, turns into another. Talk more about that in a bit. So Daniel was aware of the long-term consequences. And the reality of it is this. Daniel was not at home in Babylon any more than we are at home in this world. Daniel was not at home. He was forcibly removed from his home. He had a Babylonian identity imprinted on him. Sorry, sorry, Jewish boy. You don't even get to keep your name. You are now Belshazzar. Oh, man, okay. It's like turning him into another person. He was not at home. He was in a land that was directly opposed to the things that he held valuable and the beliefs that he had. Do we ever encounter that now? Are you ever going about your daily life and you encounter obstacles or, ba or barriers that tell you what you believe is wrong for following God? Daniel was not at home, just like this world is not our home. Let's move on, though, because Daniel has a brilliant idea here. He doesn't overreact. He doesn't put his foot down. He's not insolent. Let's see what he does. So it says in verse, the second half of verse 8, he asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. He just asks. He says, okay, can I not do this? Now, God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. But he responded, I am afraid of my lord the king who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, I'm afraid that the king will have me beheaded. It's understandable. Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. 
Please test us for ten days on a diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. At the end of the ten days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for ten days. So here's the thing. There's a lot going on there, but Daniel has this wonderful idea. He has this wonderful idea. Okay, okay, I understand. You know, we're nervous about, we don't want anybody to get beheaded. So put us to a test. Put us to a test. Try this out. And I believe God gave Daniel the wisdom to know this. But if you look in verse 9, if you look in verse 9, we'll see something very crucial. And that is this fact. God is working. God is working. It says in verse 9 that God gave the chief of staff, respect and affection for Daniel. Daniel wouldn't necessarily know what's going on behind the scenes, but God is working through this. God is working, and, it's, and um, that is what begins to bring about the results that we're about to see. So what happens then? Daniel puts this challenge out there, and they follow through with it. The attendants on board, okay, we'll give you 10 days. We'll see how we're doing after 10 days. What happens? Verse 15, at the end of the 10 days... Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who'd been eating the food assigned by the king. Wow. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided for the others. This is working. Let's keep doing it. God gave these four young men, get this, an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. When the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. Whenever the king consulted them in any manner requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. More than anybody else he had. Pretty incredible. Couple of things to take away from this. Daniel did not give in to his compromise, and as a result, God did bless his decision. What I want us to see here, let's look quickly because I want us to realize that God was active and working in this situation. God gave through this situation. If we look at verse 9, we've already seen that God gave the chief of staff, excuse me, God gave the chief of staff. Affection and respect for Daniel. God blessed him with that. Then we see again in verse 17, what does God do? God gives them these extraordinary abilities. Understanding beyond their years. Unusual aptitude. It was impressive. It was above average. It was exceptional. And God did that and he even gave Daniel the ability to interpret dreams. You see, the takeaway here also that I want us to see is this. They followed God's path. Daniel stuck to what he knew to be right, and God's path resulted in the optimal outcome. God's path, God's way, following God's law and his desire resulted in the optimal outcome. Now, we have to be just a little bit careful 
with this statement because sometimes we get this idea or we might hear these messages that, well, you know, if I follow God and I do whatever God wants me to do, then everything's just going to be peaches and cream and easy street for the rest of my life and I'll have everything that I want. And while God does love blessing us, God is very, very good. Read the rest of the book of Daniel. He goes, I mean, there's going to come a time when they throw him in a lion's den. He's going to be betrayed by people that he's worked with. He's going to have trial after trial, but God worked through Daniel's obedience to him and did something exceptional and it resulted in the optimal outcome. When I look at that in our lives, what is our goal? What is our goal? Our goal is to have the closest relationship with God that we can have. And through that relationship, what is the ultimate outcome? Eternity. Eternity with God in perfection. That, I would call that the optimal outcome. And that's what we're shooting for. So we have here this incredible example of Daniel showing us not to give in to self-diminishing compromises. That's the theme. Avoid self-diminishing compromises at all costs. Be on the lookout for them. This morning, as we consider his example and we consider how God blesses and works through our obedience to him in avoiding these self-diminishing compromises, I want to just look at three things this morning because we live in, you know, in our culture. These are just three things that pop out as we look at culture around us that, get, that I think can cause some stumbling blocks and cause some issues. And really, what I'm going to do right now is I'm just going to throw some stuff out there and I'm going to leave it between you and God to talk about this kind of stuff. I'm not going to make any judgments. I think that these are different for everybody, these things we're going to talk about. But I think that it's important that we ask those tough questions so we're on alert for those compromises. The first thing that I think is a big deal, yeah, three areas to cut it out. Three areas where we might have a little too much excess, okay? First one is our possessions. The first one is our possessions. Now, given... Everybody, there's nothing wrong with possessions. There is nothing wrong with owning things, with having things. I mean, the things that we own can, can be fun. They can bring us joy. They can help us to get work done. They can a myriad of uses from the things that we own. However, the only way I can illustrate is to kind of pick on myself a little bit. You know what I'm about to talk about, don't you, dear? She knows exactly where I'm going with this. I love guitars. I love guitars. You know what I do when I'm feeling really stressed out? I go guitar shopping. I might not go to the store and buy one, but I get on the internet and I'll pull up like the Ibanez website or I'll go to Jackson Guitars and I'll start, you know, scrolling through all there. I'll look at the New Year's models and I'll see what their equipment, what the hardware is, how they're making them, what the body styles are and all this kind of stuff. I love guitars. And I'll admit, there have even been a couple of dumb purchases that I've made of guitars because I just, I do, I love them. They're very, very precious to me. However, there are times where I might be looking at guitars or thinking about guitars or sitting here at work wondering what I'm going to do on my guitar when I get home that I might want to be thinking about something else. They might be distracting me, okay? And, and I have to ask myself, is it good? Or have maybe I given into a bit of a self-diminishing compromise? You know, because them in and of themselves can be a good thing, but it's what I have done with it. Now, whenever I talk about possessions, I always like to go to the book of Matthew. Go to the words of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 19. Read just a few short verses here. 
This is what Jesus says about possessions. He says, do not store up treasures here on earth where moths and rust, wait, excuse me, where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. So that's the question. Where are the desires of my heart? Where am I putting my true treasure? Because you know what? Those guitars ain't going with me. They're not going anywhere with me. They're going to stay right here, and eventually there'll be nothing more than dust in the ground. So think about that. Second thing I want to talk about this morning. This is the hardest one. <laughs> I got to be really careful what I say about this next one. Okay? I just, like, like I said, I'm going to put this out there. I want us to just think about it because we need to ask the questions. Our activities, the things that we involve ourselves in. Now, now get this. Activities are good. Activities are very, very good. They, they engage us. They, they can encourage us. They can create community. They can help us focus our wit. They can do all kinds of things. They can improve us as human beings. However... What kind of investment are we putting into them that should be put into something else? I got I to admit, I mean, the thing that pops into my head the most is this right here. This right here is coming to church. You know, what things, is there something that's keeping us from gathering? Let's look to the book of Hebrews. Let's see what the writer of Hebrews has to say in the 10th chapter, the 25th verse. The writer of Hebrews says this, And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. I got to admit, I got to tell you, it's hard for me to even express this, but coming up here on stage, being in this room, seeing everybody in here, and hearing you lift up your voices in praise to God, everybody, that encourages me. That encourages me. If I go a week without having that, just puts a kink in the week. It's not right. It's wrong. Something's lacking. The fact of the matter is we need each other. We need the body of Christ. And so I would pose this to us. If we ever get to the point where we say things like this, well, if we don't have anything else going on, we'll go to church. Or, well, if I don't have this activity on Sunday, then we'll go to church. If we ever get to the point where we're saying that, where we're neglecting meeting together, we might just want to ask ourselves, have I given into a self-diminishing compromise? Got to ask the tough questions. The last thing I'd like to point out today is entertainment. This, one, this is another one that hits home to me. Boy, I, just, I feel today like I'm just preaching it myself, like I'm just pounding on myself here. It's like, you've got to do all this better, man. You've got to do all this better. Entertainments, right? So I love movies. I love games. I love books. I love anything creative. I love, of course, music. You know, it's wonderful. It's stimulating. And there are times with our entertainments, let's face it, we got to take a break. We need some rest. And entertainments can help us to alleviate stress. They are not in and of themselves bad. They can be a very good thing. Here's a novel idea. God created fun. Do you realize that? The reason you're able to experience fun is because God put that in us. So there's nothing wrong with having entertainments. 
But when I look at entertainments, there's two things. First thing is, is this. I want, I want to show, show this to you real quick. Now, you might be familiar with this. Some of you are rolling your eyes. Oh, damn, that Harry Potter stuff. This is from the original Harry Potter movie. And you might be familiar with this. You might not. But when I think of entertainments, I think of this scene right here. You see, so we've got Harry. And he is looking into an object that in the books is called the Mirror of Erised. What the mirror does is it shows the person who looks into it their heart's desire. Not what they want, per se, but what they truly, deeply desire. And as Harry gazes into this mirror, he's an orphan. And so what does he see? He sees his mom and dad. He sees his mom and dad. And he becomes transfixed with this desire as he stares into this mirror. And he doesn't want to walk away. He stays there for hours and hours just staring into this mirror. Until he's approached by wise old Professor Dumbledore who tells him that they're going to be taking the mirror away and hiding it because it does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live. It does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live. I love that quote because basically what that quote says to me is that we need to be grounded in reality. We need to be grounded in reality. Sometimes when we look into the excesses of entertainment, let's face it, we oftentimes project into there what we wish we were or we had, right? We might watch films where we kind of identify with the main character. A lot of times, you know, us gamer nerds, we might play a video game and be teleported to like another another world almost if you've got that active imagination. We have to stay grounded in reality and that excess of entertainment can clog our spiritual bloodstream and make it harder for us to put our attention on God because we're constantly focused on things that are not part of the real world. Lastly about that, if we look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, very, very poignant verse right here. Paul writes these words. He says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true, and honorable, and right, and pure, and lovely, and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Thinking about entertainments, what are we putting in here? Are they true? Are they noble? Are they admirable? Once again, only we can answer these questions. But if the answer is no... If we can honestly take a step back and look at what we're doing and say, no, it's probably not so good for me, there's a good chance maybe we've given in to a self-diminishing compromise. And here's the thing. I am so very thankful that God has grace for me, right? I am so very thankful that God is full of grace, that God loves, that God continuously forgives, and I am so glad that I am saved and I have that hope and confidence. But here is a harsh reality Here is a harsh reality. In this world, there is an enemy. And he does not want you to follow the path that God wants you to follow like Daniel did. He doesn't want you to follow in Daniel's footsteps. He He wants you to consistently give in to compromise after compromise after compromise. I'm going to share with you a a quote. This was passed down. I remember my grandpa saying this. My dad has told me this. I think it's important. Write it down. It's in your sermon outline. It is this. If Satan can't condemn you, He will try to distract you. If Satan can't 
condemn you. He will throw things in your path which take your mind and your focus off of God. Whatever that is. We talked about possessions, activities, and entertainments, but there's a ton of other things he can use. He's got a lot of ammunition. He's not very creative, but he's got a lot of ammunition out there. And we have to keep ourselves alert because he will constantly try us try to throw us off course. We have been given a divine mission by God to go and spread the gospel. And that's the last thing he wants to see happen. So he'll try to turn our attention. So this week, what's the challenge for this week? How do we take this? How do we apply this? What do we do about this? Suppose the main thing is we need to be alert. We need to be alert. I want want to give us this challenge right here. I want us to start paying attention and cut out the things that are diminishing your relationship with God rather than enriching it. And really, only you can answer what that thing is. We have to all, the the scriptures say that each person has to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, we've got to take it seriously. Ask those hard questions. Because the thing is, the result is going to be positive. It's going to be amazing. We don't want to give in to those self-diminishing compromises. We want to cut out what diminishes and put in what enriches and lifts us up and really gives us a closer relationship with God. It's a big challenge, but with our church family, with the support, with the encouragement, and with God himself, we can make it happen and we can be great servants of his.